From the courtroom to the tabloids. Welcome to All Rise. All Rise swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Your host, Dylan Howard. Is it a last-ditch effort to save Ben Affleck? His estranged wife, Jennifer Garner, launches a dramatic intervention that sends him to rehab for the fourth time in two years. Is this the end for Ben Affleck, or can he be saved? Plus, the Colorado murder of a pregnant mother and two children has taken a dramatic turn, as an alleged gay lover tells all about his sexual relationship with killer Christopher Watts. And another woman comes forward to say that she too had an extramarital affair with the cold-blooded killer, and he too tried to strangle her. This is All Rise. It was the dramatic intervention after a five-night bender that saved Ben Affleck's life. His ex-wife terrified Jennifer Garner, staging a please help me for Ben Affleck's life, a decision that forced him back into rehab for his fourth inpatient stint in two years. I've assembled an all-star round table of experts. Joining me, James Robertson, the editor of OK Magazine, Andy Tillett, the news editor of Radar Online, and Ralph Ortega, the national correspondent for the National Enquirer. But first, to Joe Schrank, who is a residential therapist. Joe founded TheFix.com, which continues to be one of the premier sources of news and information about addiction and recovery. Joe, for Ben Affleck to be in rehab for the fourth time in two years, how serious is his addiction? Well, look, it's very serious. Alcohol kills 88,000 Americans a year. Um, You know, we talk about the opiate crisis and overdoses, and we should, for sure. But we forget that alcohol is a very lethal substance. And unattended, uh, his addiction is very serious. You know, it's a big question of, well, how does he want to address this issue? Because, you know, you keep going back to rehab after rehab after rehab. What good is he doing himself? I mean, the efficacy of residential rehab is, is marginal at best. It's a three to five percent success rate. So he, you know, at this point, people can go to rehab. A lot of people maybe they stabilize one time, two times. When people are on a rehab merry-go-round like this, they're not really doing much of anything, you know, other than buying time. Like he's safe while he's in the confines of wherever he is. After that, he's in the world. He's back in the world, and he's back in. Um, you know, he's he's vulnerable. So how is he going to address that? You know, that's really the question here for long-term recovery. So if you were in charge of his recovery, Joe, what would you be recommending? Uh, I would be recommending that he give up the notion of perfection, right? So we have this idea that only total abstinence is the only thing that's beneficial for people. There are medications that can help people. The 12-step culture and the rehab culture look down on medication that they're not really sober. That's not true. Vivitrol uh, is one of the medications. It's an injectable that helps people withdraw with craving. You know, so that's one of the options that might be different for him. I think that when one is a celebrity, their lives are very different. We hear that all the time. Oh, they're just like us. No, they're not. You know, his life is not like any other lives. You know, all of our lives are unique, but, you know, some of us can go to the store, nobody points or comes up to us. 
So I think it's an important thing to work within the context of his life and his unique set of circumstances. The other thing is I'm not opposed to people replacing their use of alcohol with cannabis, right? It's safe. It's legal. He lives in California. The law is for adult use. Mm -hmm. If he wanted to use cannabis periodically, right? So let's say he comes home from whatever his movie he's filming and he uses uh, an edible or a sublingual or even combustible, even if he smokes it, he's not going to have the consequences that he does with alcohol. So there's a bunch of different options. There's a bunch of different ways to look at this, but continuing to send them back to the same AA indoctrination therapeutic, uh, places, it's not helping. He's still, you know, I mean, if it were helping, he wouldn't be in rehab. That's what I wanted to ask you. You described it as a merry-go-round of rehab treatment. Does he have to go to a rehab facility for a prolonged period of time, like six months? He could go to rehab for six months. Absolutely. There is research out there that states the longer that people are in treatment, the better the outcome. So instead of three to 5%, he might be looking at a 10% success rate. Uh, you know, no other area of healthcare rests on the laurels of a 10% success rate. No. We wouldn't say to anyone with cancer, oh, well, you know, you're good. 10% of the time we can help you. So he could do that, sure. And maybe he would get the desired result. I think it's more of an issue of well, what is happening in his life and where is he tripping up like in vivo? You know, um, if he's not going to be sober in his life, he's not going to be sober. We could put him in a monkey cage for 30 days. You know, that might help. It might regroup. He might be able to get back on track. Right. I mean, I think he went to Harvard. The guy's not dumb. He understands these are not hard concepts. They're not telling him anything in rehab now on his fourth visit that they told him on his first visit. Andy Tillett from Radar Online. Explain to me the circumstances behind how Ben ended up in rehab. We saw him with a Playboy model after he split from his longtime girlfriend, who was the mistress who broke up his marriage to Jennifer Garner. What happened in a period of five days that led Ben Affleck with that now infamous photo of Jennifer Garner dragging him off to rehab in the back of a car, stopping off at a jack-in-the-box? Yes, um, he spent five days, by all accounts, at home, sweating, drinking, and then getting himself together and going out with a Playboy model. Uh, Shauna Sexton was her name. And he also took her to Jack in the Box, I believe. (laughs) Which uh, proves that he's a bit of a cheap date. But, um, yeah, I I think that uh, the pictures in the press of him and the Playboy model made Jen, who is the person who's always been his rock, who's always cared for him, uh, go round to his house and put her foot down and realise that, you know, he's just been getting worse and worse and worse uh, and, you know, changes in his life are not things that Ben deals with very well. And um, because, you know, certain things had happened, obviously Lindsay had uh, had an argument with him and she was seen ditching his car at the airport and flying home or flying back to New York where her family is and her children. Um, And I think that sparked Ben into just a complete booze bender. Okay, James Robertson, you're the editor of OK Magazine, deeply connected in Hollywood with sources very close to Jennifer Garner. Now, we know that Jen has three children with Ben, Violet, Samuel and Serafina. That has almost been the glue that has kept this couple on again and off again. Can you tell me about how Jen's coping with this and why is she sticking by him? Why doesn't she let go of him? She is very much uh, a come-to-Jesus moment. She turned up to the house with a Bible 
Uh, she takes the, the children every Sunday to church uh, with or without Ben. They are a very religious family. Um, she did not want this marriage to end. She still refuses to sign the divorce papers. It's still very much an ongoing situation. And she refuses to let Ben see the children unless he's sober. There was one instance uh, throughout the divorce where she actually made him undergo breathalyzer tests, drug tests to prove that he was sober. Um, this, man, this man's addiction will die with him. Uh, he will never be sober. He will never be clean for a long duration of time. He's sick. That is the truth behind Ben's depraved addiction. It will kill him. Jennifer is very much the only person who has the patience to stand by him. Uh, Lindsay shook us. I think they lasted a year and a half in their relationship before she eventually walked out on him. Um, and this, the 22-year-old the Playboy model we discussed earlier, uh, she lasted just a matter of uh, 72 hours. So, Joe Schrank, if you consider that in its totality, you consider the seemingly topsy-turvy life of Ben Affleck, if you like. He was dating a woman who was the mistress that broke up his marriage to Jennifer Garner. He then splits from her and shacks up with a Playboy model for 72 hours. But these are not stable things in any individual's life. How does that contribute to one's downfall or relapse? Uh, look, it's a chicken-egg argument, right? I mean, alcoholism is much more than just drinking. It's a construct. It's a worldview. It's how we operate. It's our relationships with people. So, you know, I broke up my marriage because of my drinking. I'm going to drink more. You know, that's sort of the thing. He's created the room outside of the marriage to drink as he wants to drink. I'm sure that they have this cat and dog dynamic, this sort of policing dynamic of, you know, when they were a couple, that she would say, you're not going to drink today. Okay, I'm not going to drink today. I think she's very smart to have him breath alive. I wouldn't look there, but it becomes a child welfare issue, right? So he needs to have the support around him if he's going to interact with the children. I mean, ultimately, that's the priority. Um, you know, if it's a religious belief or if it's a traditional marriage, she doesn't want to leave him. But really, you know, look, if she could do something, she would have done it by now. So James Robertson, you've got a question here? Oh, no, I was just going to jump in in regards to the therapy that he, he does undergo. Of course, he spent time at the Malibu treatment centers, but he also went to a holistic therapy and also a Buddhist yoga type retreat. So he's really tried everything and, and nothing sticks. He. But you said something. You said this is going to kill mm -hmm. him. And I wanted to ask Joe, if he doesn't get the right treatment, if he doesn't get out of this abyss that he is in, Joe Schrank, is there any saving Ben Affleck or is he on a road to complete destruction? There is. Absolutely. Recovery works. People get better all the time. There are people who are all around us who are living in recovery and managing their mental health issues and their alcoholism. So absolutely there can be. What I think is um, it's also a situation where, like I said, there's 88,000 Americans who drink themselves to death every year. Why isn't Ben Affleck going to be one of them? You know, what is it about him? I think he has tried a lot of the ways that are popular and fashionable in his particular uh, social structure. So it's very L.A. Go to a Buddhist thing or go here or go there. I, I would say, look, man, have you tried harm reduction and have you tried medication? There are medications that would help him to be sure. And also, he's, he's of the ilk. He needs a sober companion. You know, he needs to be with somebody if he is sincere about that, not as policing, but as accountability partnering. 
So whatever, Ben, if you're listening, give me a call. I'm happy to, you know, that's the kind of work that I do. If you need to sober coach, I highly recommend Playboy Shauna Sexton not be the person that is the sober coach. Joe, thanks very much for your time. James Robertson, Andy Tillett, stick with me. Ralph Ortega, you were very talkative in that segment. Stick with me because coming up after a short little break, we'll be talking about the cold-blooded killer, Chris Watts. He played the role of a doting family man while he led a bizarre secret life. And we have all the exclusive details about the Colorado killer's twisted double life. The senseless deaths of two children in Colorado and their mother whilst pregnant has stunned the world. Mum Shannon killed at 34, daughters Bella, four and three, strangled to death. The man charged with their murder, their supposedly doting dad and husband. Christopher Watts is currently behind bars, but stunning new details are emerging about a twisted double life, a secret life stained by reckless spending and extramarital flings with both men and women. Andy Tillett, the front page of the National Enquirer, out this Wednesday, has a shocking story from a woman who is coming forward to reveal for the first time that she was his mistress, but perhaps in a more stunning revelation, she's telling the National Enquirer that he tried to strangle her during sex. That's the chilling revelation that you'll find in the National Enquirer this week. Uh, The mistress came forward to say that Chris had some very rough and uh, quite sick fantasies. Uh, He wanted to have very, very violent sex with her and he slipped his hands around her neck while they were making love. How did he meet this woman and, and how did you find this woman? He met this woman through the dating app Tinder. Um, He told her that he was not married, that he was separated from his wife, and he said that he didn't have any children. He also uh, tricked her because he had a profile picture which was actually a different person. So he started chatting with her over the uh, app, and then they moved on to a text message, and he sent her a picture of what he really looked like. And she told us that she was surprised, pleasantly surprised, by how good-looking he was. How long was their affair for? Their affair lasted for six weeks in uh, May and June of this year, which is not long before he uh, committed his chilling crimes. Now, you haven't revealed the identity of the woman in this story. Will she come forward and unmask herself? Does she fear for her life? She was very, very nervous to tell her story. Uh, She was quite shocked to find the the man that she had allowed into her home and that she had... uh, sex with was capable of doing such a thing um she wanted to hide and she did not want her identity fully revealed but um she did say that she was considering you know telling her story in 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 more detail ralph ortega you are a national correspondent for the national Enquirer, why is this woman's story important in the overall context of the crime that christopher watts is alleged to have perpetrated on his wife and two children. What the relevance of this woman coming forward to say that Chris Watts had strangled her during sex, it's eerily similar to what he did to his wife when 
uh, he what, to what he said he did to his wife when he said he walked in to the bedroom, saw one of his babies uh, sprawled out blue, and then turned to see what he says was his wife in a rage strangling their other child. Then he decided what he said. He said he went into his own rage and started strangling her to death before he then discarded the bodies. Did the mistress say anything, Andy Tillett, about whether or not she was surprised, given that he was rough during sex, he was duplicitous, he was a liar, he lied to her, there were twisted lies all over the place? Was she surprised? She, she felt that she couldn't continue her relations with him because he was quite cold and he, was, he only wanted sex off her. And because of that, she didn't want to take things further. But she didn't feel that the person that she had known was the kind of guy who would just snap and kill his own wife and his own children. Will this mistress potentially be a key witness in any prosecution case? Well, if I can bring a parallel with the Scott Peterson case, a very famous case in California whereby uh, a man... It killed his wife, who was pregnant at the time, much like Chris Watts. The star witness in that case turned out to be uh, his mistress, who was the lady he was seeing uh, behind his wife's back. And the police, she went to the police, and the police recorded telephone conversations between them both, which is what they used in court, and gave a motive for his killing. Someone alluded to earlier, if you believe Chris Watts, even though he faces nine felony counts related to the murders of his wife, who, incidentally, I might say, was 15 weeks pregnant at the time with a baby boy that she'd planned to name Nico. Not only did he kill her and the unborn child, he killed the daughters. According to Watts, though, he told police that he saw video on a baby monitor that showed one of his daughters sprawled out on bed and his wife strangling that child. Is there any indication that there's any evidence to back up this seemingly fanciful claim? There is no evidence at all uh, to back this up. And there have been a leak from the police department saying that the uh, way in which the children were strangled was uh, in keeping with uh, being done by Chris. Also, we know this is a man who is capable of barefaced lies. He went on television to plea for his own family to come home the day after they had all been murdered. James Robertson, we've also heard reports about Christopher Watts engaging in gay affairs. What can you tell me about that? Now, it's bizarre that there's always a kiss and tell when it comes to murders and crimes of this level of atrocity. But an alleged gay lover has come forward claiming they also met on a dating app, which we know is a pattern uh, of which how Chris operates to find his lovers. Now, this man claimed that they had an ongoing gay relationship and we now know that there were multiple other men who have since come forward, um, not identifying themselves. They're still talking with a cloak of uh, anonymity until they feel like it's right to come forward and tell their story. But there are multiple men who said that they were sleeping with and having intimate sexual relations with this cold-blooded killer. And no doubt cops are looking at these extramarital affairs as a potential motive. In cases like this, the cops will try and ascertain why this person killed. And if he was attempting to cover up his twisted double life, that may well speak to his motive behind the crimes. Was his wife about to find out? Did she find out? Worse still, was someone prepared to blackmail him? I think we're going to find out more details as this case begins to unravel and the case is indeed prosecuted 
in Colorado. For me, though, Andy Tillett, one of the more frightening quotes was something in your story where the mistress said that she had no doubt that he slaughtered his entire family. But she said, quote, it would have been much easier for him to take me out, me being the mistress, than wipe out his entire family. She said, it's a bad thing to say. It could have been me, but it wasn't. It was three beautiful souls. When you're dealing with a man whose eyes go dead and who is admitted that he can fly into a rage at any moment, which is what he said his reason for strangling his wife was, then you're always going to be on a hair trigger. And if you're a disposable person in that person's life, you know, somebody who he was using for sex, there is no doubt that he would have been capable of exactly the same thing that he did to his own family. If you're prepared to strangle your wife, you're very much prepared to struggle with your mistress. All right, Ralph Ortega, I want you to stay with me. We're going to take a short break and then go to Iowa where we talk about Molly Tibbetts, the death of the college student who was found after being abducted in a black Chevrolet Malibu. We're going to talk about that, but before we do, I want to thank Andy Tillett and James Robertson from OK Magazine. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Dylan. Thank you, Dylan. The autopsy results are in, in the tragic case of Molly Tibbetts, the 20-year-old who died in Iowa after being abducted in a Chevy Malibu. Christian Riviera, charged with the 20-year-old's murder, but now, in a stunning about-face, he swapped legal counsel. Ralph Ortega, national correspondent for the National Enquirer, you spent time in Iowa on the ground covering this case. What is the very latest? Dylan, the latest here is that uh, Rivera is going to be sitting in jail awaiting prosecution. Uh, he's waived his right to a, uh, his initial hearing where prosecutors now will have even more time to gather evidence and question witnesses in his case. He's charged with— um, But he's already confessed. He has, but— there are still a lot of unknowns here. It looks like he, well, authorities say that he had a very strong attraction to Molly. What that means, we really don't know at this point. It uh, clearly, uh, we know that uh, Molly did know his uh, estranged girlfriend and mother of his only child, a three-year-old girl, and that uh, the girlfriend also knew Molly's brothers. They all went to high school together. So it's possible that Rivera also had known Molly prior. Authorities have not really indicated that uh, specifically. Um, They've kept back a lot of details. Um, The autopsy results reveal uh, what, as you described, sharp force injuries, which include cuts and stab wounds. From what kind of weapon, we don't know yet. Consider this, though. Riviera has told police that Molly grabbed her phone and said, I'm going to call the police. That's when he panicked, got mad. And now he's saying that his memory was blocked at that particular point. Is he setting himself up for some form of insanity defense? Um, It's a weak one at best, to tell you the truth. Um, His uncle uh, told us in an exclusive interview that uh, he was unaware of this uh, memory lapse or ability to block his memory. He was not known for having those kind of lapses. And he also argued that this horrific crime is not within Rivera's character. Now, authorities are going to uh, 
look into whether or not he had anyone help him. There's a timeline here that— Is it feasible that there could have been an accomplice? It's possible. We were witness to an FBI raid of his trailer after his arrest. Uh, They were searching underneath and questioning people, searching underneath the trailer, which made me think perhaps they were looking for a weapon. They also searched the basement of an adjoining house, and it's possible if Molly was alive— for several hours after she disappeared, that she might have been held there. We don't know. It's left to speculate right now. I think one of the tragic things about this case is that she was actually engaged and was going to get married prior to this tragic circumstance. Her boyfriend, Dalton Jack, is um, is a really sharp young man, and he held out for her uh, to be alive Till the very last second, he never doubted. Uh, he never once said to us that he thought she would end up the way she did. And uh, he told us that that was in their plan to, 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 to be. They were together for th- nearly three years and they were uh, moving on in life, graduating college. And that marriage was in the plan. They even exchanged friendship rings to, to make that commitment. So it's a, real, it's a tragic, tragic story for him and, his, and for Molly's family, for the entire community of Brooklyn, Iowa. 1,500 residents where everyone knows each other. What can you tell me about the reporting that suggested that Riviera had hid in plain sight even attending the vigil for Molly? It was uh, suggested that the suspect had been at one of the vigils and involved in the search. Now, at the time, they had not identified Rivera. So it's possible that that particular theory uh, won't hold water. However, we do know that Rivera was hiding in plain sight. He was working at a local farm. He had lived in the community, according to his uncle, for about six years. And he... When driving around, uh, he was, his car was spotted driving around the area where Molly had been jogging. Now, the investigators have a tough job here because they have surveillance video from the area that spots Molly. And then they are very careful in their arrest affidavit to say that in a separate investigation, they were able to identify Rivera. Uh, as the, as well, actually, that they were able to identify his car and that uh, led them to him. So I think they're playing catch up because they spent nearly a month riding around chasing a, a suspect that they admitted they did not know. So the cops fumbled this case. The inquirer story that we ran uh, clearly made that conclusion, yes. But she couldn't have been saved because she was dead. I. It's It's just that they weren't able to find her body quick enough. They weren't able to find her body quick enough, and it's very hard to say how long she had been alive after she was abducted and at what point and how long she had been left dead in the cornfield. It's Right now, authorities are deliberately keeping a lot of these details from us because I believe they're trying to figure out how Rivera did this, what was his motive. That has also baffled them. You know, what takes an illegal immigrant who moves into your community, acts like almost every other immigrant that lives in the community, works, lives, contributes, and then suddenly, with no criminal record that that they have told us, uh, that they've identified, and suddenly turns around and does this horrific crime. Very hard to answer that question. Ralph Ortega, brilliant reporting on the ground in Brooklyn, Iowa. Thank you very much for your time here in the studio for All Rise.
This has been All Rise, Episode 14, Season 1. And don't forget to download the latest episode of Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood. Chapter 8, The Cover-Up, dropped last week. In this chapter, we take you to the very latest in the case. Natalie Wood is dead. Her body washed ashore off California's Catalina Island. But very quickly, perhaps too quickly... The sordid episode is deemed an accident, and her husband, Hollywood superstar Robert Wagner, is permitted to move on. Now, in this episode, Fatal Voyage probes the evidence for proof of the cover-up, sinister and sprawling, that many in the know say shut the lid on the death investigation before it could even begin. So who was to blame? The answer to this question, everyone from the coroner to the cops, Frank Sinatra, and even then-president, Ronald Reagan. Chapter 8 of Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood, narrated by yours truly, is out on iTunes now or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to All Rise, the only podcast with the guts to tell it like it is.